Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, looking at authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalatal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies. We're really delighted to be undertaking this new podcast series, which is an effort to share with you, our listeners, the conversations we're having here at the Endowments International Forum with some of the world's leading analysts, researchers, and democracy activists on emerging trends that are impacting democratization. Shanti, maybe you can explain to our listeners how we came up with the title for the podcast. Sure. So a year ago, we launched a blog under the same name, Power 3.0. It focuses on how modern authoritarianism utilizes globalization in ways that few anticipated. So, for example, authoritarians now take advantage of interconnected financial systems, communication technologies like the Internet, international norms and institutions, and the relatively open arenas of global media, academic exchange, and culture. So in some ways, authoritarian and illiberal regimes have leapfrogged the capabilities of democracies, thus Power 3.0. The irony is that a key characteristic democracies hold dear, their openness, is also a vulnerability that illiberal actors are exploiting. It's worth pointing out, however, that the democracies have at their disposal their own unique features that make them both more flexible and resilient. And we hope to explore through our Power 3.0 conversations how democratic societies can leverage their own competitive advantage in response. On that note, it's a great pleasure to introduce as our very first guest on the show, someone who can always find a reason for optimism about prospects for democracy. He's co-editor of the Journal of Democracy and senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, Larry Diamond. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Shanti. Larry, together with Orville Schell of the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations, you've organized a working group of China and foreign policy experts and just published a report titled Chinese Influence in American Interests, Promoting Constructive Vigilance. The report primarily delves into efforts by the Chinese Communist Party to influence American institutions, including state and local governments, universities, think tanks, media, corporations, and the Chinese-American community. I'd like to start by asking you to give a sense of why you felt it was so important to organize this effort. In democracy terms, what's at stake in the current environment? Well, ultimately, what's at stake is the future of freedom in the world. Uh, I think that one of the most shocking aspects of our report is the revelation of how much freedom of expression freedom of information and freedom from fear and intimidation are being compromised in the United States of America, particularly among Chinese Americans, the Chinese American diaspora, and among uh, Chinese diaspora communities and other democracies, most notably, uh, but certainly not exclusively, uh, Australia and New Zealand, by the massive, uh, relentless, and increasingly sophisticated United Front and other influence activities of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, And so if we can't even preserve the freedom of our own people in our own country, something very, very grave has happened and something very profound is at stake. 
And one of the places where this really was in view at the outset was in Australia. And I know that there were, um, Australia was kept in mind during the production of this report. Maybe you can say a few words about how that informed the thinking for this effort. Well, uh, Chris, I think both Australia and New Zealand have been kind of the canaries in the coal mine here in terms of Western uh, democratic consciousness of the risks and the stakes. Uh, it isn't surprising that they would be first or earlier in the trajectory of deeper penetration because they're there closer to China uh, and uh, so perhaps easier to penetrate. Australia and New Zealand haven't had the kinds of laws on foreign agent registration uh, that we have in the United States under the so-called FARA, Foreign Agent Registration Act. Uh, they hadn't until very, very recently banned foreign contributions to their political campaigns. And so one of the things that happened in Australia was uh, a scandal. Uh, where a backbencher in the Australian Parliament was found, heard, revealed to have given a speech uh, in which he was basically reading from the Chinese Communist Party line on the South China Sea and basically saying, oh, this is reasonable, Australia should just uh, accept this. And uh, someone made an audio recording of it uh, and it became a scandal that an Australian backbencher would uh, have said this, basically sounding like a toady for the communist regime in China. He kind of survived the scandal and then, you know, some and, and returned to his role in parliament. And then some months later, it was revealed two things nearly simultaneously. Number one, that he had taken money from a Chinese businessman for his campaign. And number two, that there was a video showing that he act, this wasn't an off-the-cuff statement. These were re prepared remarks he had made. And since this became a kind of metaphor. There were many other instances in Australia uh, of you know blinking red lights in terms of very deep penetration of Australian society. Uh, by uh, the Chinese vast influence bureaucracy. I'll just say briefly, there had been an accumulation of a number of stunning incidents in Australian universities of Chinese overseas students being intimidated, monitored, followed, and of Australian professors being uh, monitored and harassed for making statements about China that uh, overseas Chinese students... Uh, were probably induced to protest. So you brought up universities around the world and their unique role in trying to preserve some element of openness and academic freedom. Um, and that can be uh, one of the first lines of, um, uh, of defense against authoritarian interference. But by the same token, it can also be one of the first places that authoritarian regimes try to undermine or influence. Um, at the launch event, there was some discussion of ways that universities should react to things like Confucius Institutes, for instance. And uh, Minchin Pei, who was part of the working group, noted at the launch that he wouldn't recommend banning the Confucius Institutes, uh, but that rather there should be some kind of transparency around them. And you, <clears throat> you referred to um, <laughs> an almost... Uh, 
classified information like environment surrounding the contracts that have been struck between universities and Confucius Institutes. What can be done then about not just Confucius Institutes, but other forms of Chinese government influence within universities and democracies around the world? So I think we have to take apart the different influence activities of the different potential forms of influence. And uh, we need to address them as a whole, because I do think there's a Chinese strategy there. But we also need to disaggregate them, because they have different implications. The view we have taken in, in our report, which I do believe elicited very broad consensus among the members of our working group, <clears throat> is a little bit different than what some of the politicians uh, have suggested, namely that the Confucius Institutes in themselves uh, do not necessarily represent a threat to academic freedom as long as they are transparent in their agreements and as long as they are not banning or preempting or eclipsing discussion of certain subjects. Now, what are these institutes? Mainly, they're teaching Chinese language. And uh, uh, a couple of the members of our working group have examined the pedagogical instruments they use, the language instruction materials. And they're not full of propaganda. The, they were not found to be intrinsically objectionable. So there are other aspects of the Confucius Institutes that present problems for academic freedom. The most serious one is that the agreements are secret, and even the faculty, uh, typically on most university campuses, uh, don't know of them. A second is that um, in some colleges and universities, they may actually preempt discussion of sensitive subjects like Tiananmen Square or Tibet or what's going on now in Xinjiang province. And if they veer into programming, uh, that w given the fact that the Chinese government is paying for these, pro these programs uh, in different universities, if they veer away from language instruction to programming about current events and so on, that is deeply troubling. So we need transparency, and we need faculty governance, we need autonomy, we need uh, democratic control. And as long as the Confucius Institutes have these, uh, then you know, they just add to the resources for language instruction. Personally, I strongly doubt that the Chinese government would agree to these terms. And I think uh, if they don't, that should result in the cancellation of all of these contracts. I mean, I think that's, a, that's an interesting point, that the transparency is not just there for its own sake, but it's also to cause a discussion around what is and isn't permissible in these environments. Correct. And it's just a basic principle of democracy and accountability. And we have found Shanti across the board uh, in terms of think tanks uh, corporate relations, uh, relations with crucially state and local governments and sister city and sister state relationships, uh, as well as universities, that transparency is key and that um, sharp power control is very difficult to sustain in an, abs in an atmosphere of transparency. 
And so you just named a host of institutions and sectors that are grappling with the challenges that have emerged that are laid out in the report that's just been released. In many ways, um, democratic societies haven't been oriented towards dealing with these kinds of problems. In essence, the challenges that are presented um, to free expression, academic expression, media expression within democratic societies instigated and imposed from the outside. Um, and to the extent this has happened in the past, it, it wasn't done with the same degree of integration, intersection, which makes it much more acute, much more um, thick in a sense. What needs to happen within democracies in the coming term? Um, you've just explained the university challenges, but going beyond the university into some of these other sectors, what needs to happen within the democratic context to ensure that there's an adequate response on the one hand, but that the response itself is consistent with liberal democratic values. Correct. Yes. Thanks, Chris. And that the response is not hysterical, that it doesn't uh, uh, breed a kind of generalized uh, suspicion of uh, uh, Chinese Americans, Chinese Australians, or, or Chinese overseas students and businessmen who are doing uh, and women who are doing legitimate work in other countries. I think the most important thing or the beginning point is information. It's education, it's understanding, it's awareness. I have become convinced uh, as a result of uh, my involvement with this project that there is simply breathtaking ignorance and naivete in Western democracies about what's going on here, uh, that China has a vast Leninist Communist Party influence bureaucracy that's centrally coordinated at the top and that has as its mission and raison d'etre the projection of sharp power. Uh, some of it is the projection of soft power through traditional means of, uh, you know, uh, articulating their views and building relationships and so on that all countries uh, do as particularly when they kind of reach a certain level on the world stage. But a lot of it is sharp power. And to put it another way, the way that former Australian Prime Minister uh, Malcolm Turnbull put it a year or two ago when he launched Australia's uh, very historic effort to finally push back against this activity that is covert, uh, uh, coercive, and corrupting. Uh, and this is what we need to guard against. Uh, so the covert is clear. We need transparency in all aspects of these relationships. Gifts, grants, donations, the terms for uh, a conference, uh, the conditions for an exchange, all of this needs to be disclosed. And if the Chinese interlocutors, think tanks, uh, friendship associations, and so on, are not willing to have the terms disclosed, that in itself should be a blinking, blinking red light that something is wrong here. Uh, beyond that, uh, we recommend consideration of, I would put it stronger, I recommend creation of, a federal government office where universities, uh, think tanks, NGOs, local governments, and other, other American actors can go when they're approached by a Chinese uh, potential you know, exchange partner 
or potential investor or potential donor or whatever it might be to just say, you know, we don't know much about this person. Is there, is there, are, are there other aspects to their organizational ties or their persona that, that haven't been disclosed that we should know about before we make our own decision about whether we want to accept this donation or pursue this exchange relationship or something like that? And, you know, what we have found is frequently you don't have to look very hard to find that the person who wants uh, uh, to uh, have a cooperative relationship with a research institute and a university is doing cutting-edge research that could have military applications at a university affiliated with the People's Liberation Army or that another person is actually a part of the apparatus of the United Front Work Department of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Well, we should know this stuff before we pursue these relationships. So um, our actors in the United States and other democracies need help. They need places where they can go. And they need to understand, I hope they'll read at least parts of our report, to educate themselves. I'll mention one other thing that I think uh, non-governmental organizations and state and local governments need to do. They are frequently being played off one against the other by the divide and rule tactics of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, I can take my money elsewhere. Uh, we can take this exchange relationship elsewhere. You don't want to come here, we'll get delegation from one of your uh, competitor institutions. And that game has to stop. They need to develop a common base of information and a common code of conduct so they all have the same certain minimum standards and principles in terms of how they're going to relate to uh, their potential interlocutors in China. And Larry, you mentioned the uh, weak knowledge that is possessed in many democratic settings about China and the way in which the system operates beyond its borders and engaging democratic institutions. Um, places like Africa, Latin America, parts of Europe. Um, one of the problems seems to be structural, which is that you have China experts who focused on China who may not have knowledge of the regions in which China today is deeply engaged. At the same time, many of those regions may not have the China expertise in the policy community and the news media editors and so forth who can put China in context in a way that their own societies can come to their own conclusions about the nature of the relationship they have. So what do we need to do in the coming term to bridge those gaps and to make sure that the knowledge gaps that now exist in so many places uh, are not as large and are, are shrunk over time? Well, I, I hope that our report uh, on Chinese influence activities in the United States will help. Uh, but we need the help of the media and organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy to diffuse and uh, to also kind of distill the knowledge uh, into more bite-sized chunks. Hopefully this podcast will be uh, uh, one step in that direction. Um, as I said, I think we need a center where organizations can go to get more understanding information and maybe specific knowledge. Um, I think that people like ourselves involved in this working group uh, uh, and research effort need to reach out to uh, universities, uh, the American Association of University Professors and University 
presidents, uh, to media, to the National Conference of Mayors, the National Conference of Governors, the National Conference of State Legislatures. Actually, we hope to do all of that and just kind of share our our analysis and our information about some of the trends uh, we're seeing and some of the things that we should be aware of. Again, the message is not don't have any relationships with China. It is be vigilant. Uh, our, uh, our watchword is constructive vigilance, be mindful, ask questions, uh, seek transparency. So I noticed in your report that you recommend that the media should undertake fact-based investigative reporting of Chinese government influence, which is, I think, starting to happen now in many developed democracies. But let's turn our focus now to the emerging and vulnerable democracies on which we at the forum tend to focus more of our attention on. And certainly they were uh, a big part of the Sharp Power report that came out um, last year. You know, how should these democracies that frequently are lacking that capacity, whose institutions are inherently more vulnerable, and whose media uh, institutions may not have the capacity to do that kind of really detailed investigative reporting. How should they try to address this issue? And, uh, you know, I'm thinking in particular, I know you're an Africanist, in many African countries, the Chinese government has already engaged in really vigorous exchange programs and vigorous media training, really extensive and well-resourced efforts to um, not just promote its own narrative, but to shut down certain alternative narratives from forming. Well, I'd say, um, uh, number one, don't send your journalists to be brainwashed by the Chinese Communist Party uh, in China. Uh, Number two, Uh, I'd say these media houses should seek to give their reporters some training uh, in the coverage of China and in China's uh, projection of sharp power. Uh, And I think that the Western democracies, basically the United States, the European Union, in Asia, I think Australia has a role to play here. They really need to step up to the plate in terms of, I now believe, vast increases in media training and media assistance programs. Um, I think there is an urgent need uh, to counter China's malign influence activities in Africa, targeted particularly at the media, with vast new resources for media training of African and emerging market country uh, journalists. Training in journalism in general uh, and training in uh, the ways and techniques of sharp power projection, not just by China, but go back to the NED report, Russia, Iran, and potentially other actors as well. We're now seeing Saudi Arabia spending a a lot of resources on sharp power projection. Uh, I think we need to, uh, it's the obvious thing to say in talking to Ned, but uh, we need more resources uh, to do this. Uh, And the Congress is, I think, going to have to wrestle with this challenge that we are now being outmatched and outspent by the Communist Party of China on many of the playing fields in Africa and other developing and post-communist and emerging market societies. 
I mean, you know, there was a column that was just written by a well-known media scholar where he approvingly noted the existence of a unitary media system underwritten by the party state. And to me, that really um, brings that point home that these are countries and institutions that should naturally be um, hewing to a more democratic model. But somehow the CCP's narrative of development versus democracy seems to have taken hold. But, you know, what's your view of the, you know, that narrative in Africa? My view is that we thought when the Cold War ended and communism generally uh, collapsed in most places, of course, not in China, not Vietnam, not in Cuba, in most places. Uh, And then there was the second liberation in Africa and a wave of new uh, democratic transitions. We thought we had won the ideological battle. We thought it was the end of history, at least in terms of there being in Frank Fukuyama's concept, no generalizable ideological systemic rival to the model of uh, liberal democracy and market capitalism. And I think we have an ideological systemic rival uh, now in the Chinese system. Not in the Russian system, it's too decadent to be an ideological model. Uh, But the Chinese system, I think, is going through on the world stage a significant, if incremental, evolution in two respects. One, increasingly, in recent years, in very recent years, under Xi Jinping, China is beginning to push it as as a different model, the China model, a better model, uh, more suited to rapid development a model of development and to some extent market capitalism, although it's very state-managed, without uh, the flaws and grinding paralysis of democracy. And secondly, they're spending a huge amount of money to promote it, to sell it, and to uh, bring people to China to see it. And we would be, I think, blind and... um, naive not to notice that it's having some impact. And so given the scope of the report that um, you've overseen and is just out in the nature of the challenge, as you've described it, Larry, uh, what do you think is the most important takeaway at this stage for decision makers and civil society leaders in democracies around the world who increasingly have um, a multifaceted relationship with China? commercial terms, political terms, media terms, what should they have at the forefront of their thinking in order to get the best outcome in terms of uh, retaining democratic accountability in their systems? I think the most important thing for them to understand is that China is still a communist party state with maybe not Marxism being a very important, relevant ideology anymore, although it is kind of thrown at young people uh, still, but certainly Leninism as as being the way the state is organized, the way it projects itself on the world stage through this vast influence bureaucracy overseen by the Chinese Communist Party, but heavily involving a variety of state elements as well. 
And when you see something like the Chinese People's Friendship, International Friendship Association, or anything like that, what you see is not always what you get, that beneath that is a whole strategy for cultivation and compromise. And this doesn't mean that there can't be, you know, still valuably fruitful relations that can be pursued in terms of potentially sister city relationships, certainly in terms of Chinese university students coming to the U.S., in terms of co-investment and collaborative research. But it means there is a hidden agenda in these entrees, in these overtures, and in the pursuit of these relationships. And we always have to evaluate what that might be, who the actors are, really are, that are making the approaches, what the risks are, that there needs to be a serious risk analysis in each case, what kinds of questions we should be asking, and what forms of transparency we should be insisting on, including uh, also freedom from constraint, that the Chinese do not get to say, you can't have a different opinion about Taiwan than we do. Uh, the answer to that has to be, sorry, we're not giving up our freedom of expression. If that's a condition for the relationship, thank you very much. We're not interested. Uh, so that is the mentality that is needed. Uh, and if American non-governmental organizations, universities, think tanks, media, corporations, uh, local governments and other actors don't bring that awareness and that mentality to the discussion of, negotiation of, and initiation, possibly, of relationships with peer actors in China, we are at very grave risk of having our democracy diminished and compromised in a variety of small, incremental ways that initially will gather uh, and aggregate into very large and serious uh, consequences. So let me continue in the big picture vein. You know, in the report, you talk about three elements of a democratic response, transparency, integrity, and reciprocity. And again, as we move out beyond the U.S. to these other examples, how can these younger, more vulnerable democracies hew to these principles? And I guess I'd home in particular in on reciprocity. If there's an unequal relationship or an imbalance in the relationship where, where a country feels like it doesn't have the ability to be reciprocal, how would you go about advising these younger, more vulnerable democracies in their relations with the Chinese government? Well, we really articulated the reciprocity principle more with the United States and similar types of advanced democracies like, say, Germany and Australia in mind, that uh, our democratic journalists, think tanks, and so on, you know, have to have some degree of access uh, and open access to China if they want uh, our Chinese peers to have the same kind of access to the United States. We hope it can be a lever to open up Chinese society to more balanced exchange and a healthier relationship. 
with the uh, smaller democracies of, say, emerging market countries, I think the issue is more their vulnerability uh, and um, uh, threat to their institutional integrity. I've, I've spoken about uh, transparency. I think that's now clear. Uh, I think with respect to institutional integrity, there's a few points I would make. One is education is crucial. They've got to understand how these systems operate, how uh, autonomy can be compromised, what kinds of questions they need to ask, and so on. Secondly, they've got to be very careful not to become so financially dependent on Chinese actors uh, that uh, who ultimately have to answer to the Chinese Communist Party, even if they're not formally affiliated with it, even corporations, that they really lose their independence because they're dealing with an authoritarian party state that's going to ask for a lot in, in return and may ultimately ask for their port or the next 20 years of their oil exports or, uh, or whatever it might be. So um, awareness is key, and if you're going to avoid excessive dependence, then you've got to not necessarily avoid relating to China, but ensure that the overall proportion of Chinese aid, of Chinese engagement, isn't dominant. Uh, and so that's partly on them to diversify. It's partly on us to generate the supply of aid, of training, of investment, and other forms of, uh, of partnership and, and resource enhancement that will make it possible for them to avoid excessive dependence on the People's Republic of China. The other thing I want to say, it's on them, but again, it's also on us. Every time China comes and builds a telecom network for these countries, they've got to assume that the Chinese Communist Party state is capturing all this data and sending it back uh, to China. Is this what they want for their country and the future of freedom in their country? So I think we have to aggressively challenge uh, China's bid to become the virtually monopolistic supplier of telecom networks uh, in Africa. I think this is a grave threat to individual privacy and freedom in Africa. I think, Larry, you've, you've laid out in um, really extraordinary detail the scope of the challenge. And in a way, if I'm understanding correctly, the leading uh, better resourced uh, countries that are dealing with this challenge have to really be at the forefront of resetting standards and making clear what um, what needs to be done to safeguard free expression and to make sure the integrity of institutions are there. In the absence of that, it's really quite a lot to ask uh, other countries in a weaker position to take the charge on that. And so in a sense, uh, there needs to be more collaboration and information sharing and finding ways to um, have solidarity in a sense, to deal with what is um, a unitary challenge on so many fronts in the way you've described it. And I think this report I, I participated in uh, should really be required reading for anyone who wants to get a better sense of the scope of the challenge and what needs to be done to deal with it. 
So before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to introduce our final segment that will include in every podcast episode, where we ask our guests what they're currently reading and might recommend to our listeners. For my part, I've been reading The People vs. Tech. It's authored by Jamie Bartlett, who does a really excellent job of dissecting the problems that have emerged in the digital era, how the speed, relentlessness, and ubiquity of social media are inhospitable to reason discussion in so many ways. His writing makes clear just how high the stakes are for democracy. I think this book really should be read by anyone who wants to understand the issues and the stakes involved for uh, democracies around the world that are now relying on digital media as the principal mode of communication and understanding the world around them. And uh, for my part, it's a bit self-promoting, but it's the truth. I'm reading the article on Democracies Near Misses by Tom Ginsburg and Aziz yeah. Huck in the last volume of the Journal of Democracy. Uh, it points out that it's important to understand not only how democracies die, but also how they live. In other words, as they say, the investigation of democratic decline should not begin and end with the instances in which democracy has ended up on its deathbed. So the article focuses on how democracies persist under conditions of severe pressure, looking at historical case studies from Finland, Colombia, and Sri Lanka. Uh, I chose this because I would like to look at a bright spot on the horizon. Larry, what have you been reading? Uh, well, I'm almost done with John Meacham's uh, absolutely remarkable book, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels, which is uh, just a deeply inspiring book about the struggle for democracy, decency, tolerance, the struggle against racism in America uh, from particularly the Civil War period uh, and emancipation through uh, our, our current times. Uh, it, it's a just deeply eloquent uh, uh, overview of this um, you know, unfinished business we have of liberal democracy in America. But relevant to our current conversation, I would like to also recommend Clive Hamilton's book, Silent Invasion, which is a very deep and uh, striking uh, book-length portrait of Australia's struggle against uh, very, very advanced and malign Chinese influence uh, operations in Australia and how Democratic institutions, uh, I think he might say, almost became irretrievably compromised. Uh, I think under uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, Australia and now the current government as well, because the reform legislation continues, the current uh, uh, threat is subsiding a little bit, but the book is a striking uh, and vivid portrait uh, of how this influence activity works and what's at stake. Well, that's all the time we have today for this episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. Before we conclude, I'd just like to thank you, Larry, for joining thank us you, for this. Shanti. It's been a great conversation. For more on the topic we discussed today, visit the Stanford University Hoover Institution website to download the report, Chinese Influence in American Interests, Promoting Constructive Vigilance. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. 
Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalethal with Chris Walker and Larry Diamond. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on China and the global challenge to democracy and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts. Thank you.